You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So we're going to pick things back up this morning in Matthew. We've been studying the book of Matthew for a little over a year now. And we're going to continue walking through the parables together. And so if you don't have a Bible or a device that will help you get to Matthew 13, you'll see a Bible in the tray and the chair in front of you. Uh, Go ahead and grab that Bible. If you don't have a Bible, that's yours. If you know somebody who would benefit from owning a Bible, you can take that and give it to them. Uh, That's our gift to you. We've arrived this morning. This is kind of a big deal this morning. We've arrived today at the halfway point in the Gospel of Matthew. And true to form, in the structure of biblical writing, the thing that happens in the middle of a narrative is generally something really important, and it's something to pay close attention to. And so today's reading is no exception. Matthew's going to highlight for us a couple of important truths, and I'm even going to have trouble telling you what those truths are today, because they're they're weighty. They're so vast for us to comprehend, even though they're very simple for us to intellectually understand. And yet perhaps at the same time, this is the most difficult thing to believe. For that reason, I've been praying leading up to this morning and even now that the Holy Spirit would be here Because in order to believe these two things, we're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew will invite us today to consider that one, it is worth losing everything for the kingdom of heaven. And two, the consequences of rejecting the kingdom of God are real. And that may just be the warning we need this morning to take seriously the invitation Jesus offers to be a part of his kingdom. Up to this point, Matthew has been laying out not just an informational story about Jesus and his ministry, but a persuasive argument for his readers and for us to trust and follow Jesus, especially for people who did not get him. He is speaking to people primarily rooted in the Jewish tradition, and he is masterfully outlining and helping them see three things. That Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us, now and forever. Matthew wants to move the skeptics and the confused toward Jesus with compelling evidence, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So before we begin in chapter 13 this morning, can I, can I invite you to do something that's been really helpful for me in preparation for this week? I want to do a quick review of where we've been. When we started this a year and a half ago, I, I want to I pull back and take a 30,000-foot view of of where we've been so you can begin to see or even be reminded of how Matthew is is compiling this, how he's laying forth this information and and this evidence 
that Jesus is these three things. So I invite you, uh, this is going to be, don't be afraid of page turning. I want to invite you back to Matthew chapter 1. So flip back there, scroll back to Matthew chapter 1 with me. And don't, don't feel bad, you can, just, you can just flip those pages, it's okay. Let's go back to chapter 1. And as I move through this, just flip the pages and you'll see where I am and you'll see where Matthew was going. You'll be reminded again of where we've been, what Jesus is up to, what he's been doing, how Matthew is trying to lay this out. So in Matthew chapter 1, we begin and Matthew understands the skeptics are going to say, okay, how do you know Jesus is the Messiah? And Matthew begins his gospel message, that is, this message of good news by telling the story of the arrival of the Messiah. By recording the genealogy of Jesus back to King David and all the way back to Abraham, these are heroes of the Jewish faith, he wants us to see that Jesus is from the line of David where a king was foretold to come and restore all things. You'll see that Matthew records Jesus' birth, the visitation of the Magi, the flight to Egypt, and the return to Nazareth. Why does he detail these events? This is really important. Because they point directly back to Old Testament prophecies that the people would have been very familiar with. You'll see them peppered throughout here. All these references back to these Old Testament prophets saying, this is going to come. Wait and see, this is going to come. And so Matthew is saying, here's the arrival. Look, look and see. So the people reading this would have been very familiar with this story and Matthew is inviting them to say, hey, wait a second. Could this be? Who is this? In chapter, C, in chapter 3, we see the preparation for the appearance of the Messiah by John the Baptist. He proclaims his coming, and Jesus is baptized as a divine announcement that the kingdom of heaven had arrived. Again, with Old Testament references supporting the events. And the end of this section is the proclamation of Jesus' identity. Chapters 4 through 7 illustrate the advancement of the messianic kingdom, that is the kingdom of the Messiah. First, Jesus goes out into the desert. He overcomes temptation there, displaying his power over Satan, and then he begins his ministry, calling people to repent for the kingdom of, hand, kingdom of God is at hand. He calls his first disciples here begins to develop the first community of believers, and he begins preaching and teaching people about the kingdom of God with the Sermon on the Mount. He is teaching what, messianic, what the messianic kingdom looks like. What kingdom life is like. How those who belong to the kingdom can even be recognized. And how the kingdom of God views all sorts of things like lust and anger and divorce and oaths and caring for the needy and fasting and how to pray in chapter 6. Jesus is describing all of these things, all these features of the kingdom which bewilders people. It's not a kingdom about status and power and control. It's a kingdom about humility and service and sacrifice. Jesus' kingdom is about the poor, the needy, the outcast, just like Matthew. 
When this section of Jesus' teaching concludes at the end of chapter 7, once again, the people recognize Jesus' authority in teaching. And then chapters 8 and 9 introduce us to demonstrations of the Messiah's kingdom power. So you'll see right away, Jesus demonstrates authority over sickness and death and fear and even nature. Demons listen to him and know him. The wind and the waves obey him. He is healing and setting people free from their spiritual bondage and physical conditions. He's confounding the religious elites and and even beginning to face opposition. And along the way, he's inviting people to follow him. And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, Matthew inserts himself into the narrative. And that's where Matthew gets the call. Now, at this point in the story, you would think, after everything that's happened, that there would be more adopters of Jesus. The things he said and did were unlike anything people had seen before, but, but we don't see that. Sure, it says people committed to him and followed him. But many more people knew about Jesus and heard stories about him and heard was he, that what he was doing than people who had committed to him. So he concludes this section by saying as such that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now there is some encouragement here that I want you to hear. Even those who saw Jesus and heard his words didn't believe. So if you're here this morning and and you are skeptical about this Jesus person or don't really know what you think about him, or maybe this is entirely new for you, You can take a deep breath. You're in good company. Jesus knows our tendency to doubt and be skeptical. He's very patient with it. And so he's the one who can open our eyes to this. So hang on and let's see what the Holy Spirit does. So we're getting closer here. Even in the midst of sending out the 12 disciples here in the next few chapters, Chapters 10 and 12 begin to describe more opposition to the Messiah. People are beginning to question him, form opinions about him. The religious elites begin plotting against him. Things are not panning out the way people expected. John the Baptist was in prison at this point, wondering if Jesus was the Messiah or if they should look for another person. This is astonishing. This is the same same guy that baptized Jesus in chapter 3. The same guy that saw the dove come down from heaven and the voice proclaim, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He's in prison and he's like, wait a minute, this is how this is going? Jesus, wait a minute, ask Jesus if he's the one or if we should be looking for somebody else. This is crazy. There were cities that saw his mighty works and refused to believe and even his own family questioned him. What a perfect time for a parable. What is going on? The parables help us to see. As we've been learning, the parables were narrative stories in the form of of similes which described spiritual things. Deep spiritual truths about the kingdom of God and in some cases even commented about what was happening to the people as they were confronting Jesus. Think of the parable of the sower that Andy walked us through a couple weeks ago. It described how the word of God was being received by the people and who were hearing it from the source. No wonder there was not this massive group of committed followers. The word was being choked out by thorns 
or scorched by the sun because of shallow roots, or carried away by the birds because there was no soil. You see, for believers in Jesus, parables are windows, not locked doors. They provide access to deep spiritual truths, but many of the people were experiencing the locked doors. They were not given the ears to hear and the eyes to see because they could not grasp it yet. Or they outright rejected it. And now we're caught up to chapter 13. Four parables remain in this chapter, and Jesus reserves these last four parables for the disciples. He pulls them aside and teaches them these last four parables. So join with me in chapter 13, verse 44. We'll begin there. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where does this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is God's word to God's people, to God's people, and I pray for the Holy Spirit to come, that we would hear God's word and see Jesus and Him only. I read an article the other day, it was really helpful. The title of the article was Phobo is the new FOMO, and you probably have it. And I think you probably do. I do. You're probably familiar with FOMO, yes? Fear of missing out. This was a term coined back in the early 2000s to describe the sense of dread you would feel if something happened and you were not a part of it. 
My mother has the worst case of FOMO I've ever seen. When we would gather at home as a family, we would stay up late into the night talking, and she would progressively become more and more tired and become more and more horizontal on the floor, and she just needed to go to bed. But she was so afraid of missing out on the conversation that she, she didn't do it. She just stayed. Well, it turns out FOMO is old news, and FOBO has taken its place. Fear of better options. Fear of better options. You know this is true. I bet you've experienced it in one way or another from someone you know or you have done it yourself. It goes something like this. Someone invites you to do something and you say something like, I'll let you know. Or, I have to see what's going on. Or how about, I'll get back to you. And it's all because... You like to keep your options open, right? You're laughing because you've done this. This passage is going to be tough for the Phobo generation because Jesus is making a bold statement in this parable. There is nothing better than the kingdom of God. There's nothing better. There is nothing on this earth, earth that comes close to what Jesus offers to you and me. And here's the thing you and I both know. Every single day, sin and the devil will promise us other things that seem like better options, don't they? It's called temptation, and it always seems really good, a much better option. Satan will use the same tax tactics he used with Jesus in chapter 4, and he's used all through time, even back with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, by offering you something to turn your allegiance away from Jesus and toward death. By grace, the Lord opens our eyes and ears to see and hear the good news of the kingdom of God. And my prayer this morning is that he would do it for us. So let's look at this man walking in a field. He's evidently not looking for anything. He's minding his own business. And he helped us understand the cultural context of this parable a couple of weeks ago. People would, people would walk through fields all the time, getting from here to there, walking through fields that were not theirs. So this would have been a common practice. And the idea of burying something valuable would have been familiar too, because there was really no solution for taking care of valuable things. There was not a bank. There was not a safety deposit box to go store your valuables. If you wanted to hide something and keep it safe, you had to bury it. You had to hide it somewhere and hope that you survive long enough to go get it or tell somebody about it so they could hopefully find it one day. So here's the mystery of the kingdom and the revelation of the nature of God all in one. The man in this parable tripped over something he was not looking for in a field that was not his. He recognizes right away that the thing he has discovered is very valuable, so valuable, in fact, that he has the presence of mind to think through how to ensure he can keep the treasure. Make sure the treasure is unquestionably his. You see, back then, if you took something from someone's field, which was called lifting, it's 
where we get shoplifting. If you lifted it and the landowner found out, the landowner could claim ownership of the found thing. So he covers up the treasure. And in his joy, goes and sells all he has to buy the field which ensured he was the owner of the treasure. No dispute. Who put that treasure right there? Where the man would trip on it? Who gave him the power to recognize its worth? Who filled him with such joy about the treasure that the thought of selling all he had to buy the field was an easy decision? Can you imagine that? Selling all you have to ensure you had the one thing more valuable than any other thing. For some of you, I want to encourage you, being here this morning might be just like this person who wandered into a field not expecting to find anything, but he ended up finding the thing that transformed his life forever. But there are others who are searching. Searching for something like the merchant searching for pearls. This merchant had dedicated their life to finding pearls, knowing or at least hoping there was a, a pearl out there that would finally end the search. He had an idea of what he was looking for, something to satisfy his, his longing, something that would bring purpose and meaning and joy to his life. Do you know what that is like? Do you know what that feels like? Searching and searching. And when the merchant found it, there was no doubt that what he had found was the finest pearl. And again, without question, he goes and sells all he has to buy the pearl, not for profit, but for the joy of knowing the pearl was his. For some of you, this is you. You've been searching. Maybe you've been questioning. You've been trying to find the meaning and purpose and value in this life. Could it be? Could it be that the kingdom of God satisfies those longings? I have a friend who's a lot like the first guy. Oh, we went to school together. He loves Jesus a lot. And I love his story because Jesus found him in a bar one night and he was pretty drunk. There was a band playing that night, live music. And for whatever reason, the band included in their set a song, an old 50s, bluegrassy kind of tune. I don't know why you put this in your set, but they did it. All about Jesus and his kingdom. My friend Clayton heard some of the lyrics. It transformed his life. He's been following Jesus ever since. He's helped me follow Jesus even better. What grace that God would lay that treasure right in front of him. And he heard it, thanks be to God. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's a hidden treasure. It's the most valuable pearl. So which one are you? Are you the one just wandering through, not expecting to find anything, or are you the one searching? Is it possible that God knows 
and is intentionally putting something or someone in your path that would transform your life. It would have to be pretty extraordinary, wouldn't it? It is worth losing everything for the kingdom of heaven. It would have to be pretty awesome. So let me ask you a question, and this is a tough question to think about. What are you afraid of losing? The kingdom of God would have to be something so magnificent, so beyond anything we have here, so awesome to joyfully endure the cost of losing everything. So what is it that you're afraid of losing? And I know that some of you sitting in here have lost some of these things already. Guess what? Whatever you thought of just now, whatever it was, unless you thought your soul, you're going to lose it. Everything. There's no way around it. You will lose it. Your health, your money, your job, your spouse, your children, your pet, your home, your car, your plans, your fill in the blank. You're going to lose it. That's really tough to think about, isn't it? Unless there really is something greater than all of these things. Unless there really is something worth putting all these things aside to attain. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Can you believe that the Lord offers more? Paul believed it. Listen to how he described it in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Have you ever considered that once you let go of the things of this world and take hold of the kingdom of God, you will start to enjoy the gifts of grace of this life even more because you, you don't have to have false expectations anymore that anything in this world has the power to satisfy or save you. You can enjoy it. You can see and enjoy all the many wonderful and exceptional and spectacular things God has created for us to enjoy in this life because it, because it all exists under the redemptive rule and reign of His kingdom, not ours. Sigh a breath of relief, my friends. You do not have to create a kingdom. Yeah. The kingdom has already come, and you're invited. 
There is a feast at the table of the master, and there is a placeholder there for you. Your name is on it. That's why for followers of Jesus who have accepted this invitation, the next part of this passage isn't so frightening. To be sure, the day will come when God and his perfect judgment will separate those who belong to the kingdom of God and those who do not. The net will drag up everything. There's no getting around that. Jesus, uh, Jazz taught us about this warning last week. Jesus did too. <laughs> and it appears again today almost verbatim. So Jesus must have taken this pretty seriously. It says in verse 49, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus was a fire and brimstone preacher. Listen, we want to take seriously the things Jesus took seriously. No more, no less. I know that for some of you that fire and brimstone message has been kind of pounded over your head like a club without much assurance of God's saving grace. For others of you, maybe it's been glossed over. Maybe it has never been taken seriously. Whatever the case may be, fear is not a good motivator or agent of change, and that's not the intention here. But this just might be the stern warning we need. Jesus is talking about a time when those belong to him will be gathered up and those who do not will be separated from him. That's not fun to think about. And if it makes you angry, if it makes you sad, tell Jesus about it. He can take it. He knows. And you can let him know. But listen to these words of John from John chapter 6. 35 to 40. Jesus says, Jesus said to them, that's the people who are gathered near him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the sure hope we have in Christ. This is great news. And after all of this, Jesus brings the disciples in close and he asks them this question and their response is so surprising to me. I'm so skeptical. Jesus asks them, have you understood these things? And they say, yes. If it was me, I would have been like, really? Really, you guys, you get it? But the point is pretty simple. 
The Lord had granted the disciples understanding. He's the one who does that. I don't see evidence here that Jesus didn't believe them or that they were lying. They got it. The Lord helped them to see. And the confidence to say, yes, Lord, help us to have the same answer today. Therefore, Jesus says, or because of this understanding, every scribe, think of this word as student, every, every student of the kingdom of heaven, in other words, those who have been discipled and have grown in knowledge and wisdom and maturity is like a householder or a, a master of a house. A householder is a, a person of, of significance. Now, before you get excited that there's somehow a promotion involved here, that's not true. Remember, this is by grace. The master of the house did not become that on his own. He received it by grace, not by anything that he had done. His significance is derived by what God had done. And now he can bring out of his treasure, out his treasure and show it off. Look at what God has done, he says. This new thing with Jesus makes all the old things in the Old Testament make a whole lot of sense. I understand Jesus so much more now by the prophecies of old. And the prophecies of old have come to completion in Christ. And we feel this tension between the old and the new today too, don't we? You probably lean one way or the other. You're either wishing for the return to something old, or you can't wait to get to something new. You either lament the loss of something from the good old days that you wish would come back, or you just can't wait to abolish the good old days and replace it with the current thing, the current cultural phenomenon, something out there, something in the future. To lean, heavily into, to lean too heavily into one or the other is to forget what the householder found, that God is in both. To believe that God was only present in the good old days robs you of what God is doing now. He's doing it now. And to believe that God was somehow up to no good in the good old days, or that He must have been completely absent from that. And we should abandon the things we have known to be true for thousands of years is to rob yourself of seeing His extraordinary faithfulness and steadfastness over a long period of time. We can trust in our God who has not changed, and yet as our world changes, we can measure the new moment up against a timeless God and take heart that He is never surprised, never discouraged. And so we're left this morning in verse 53. There's this transition out of these teachings on the parables. And it's his final visit to his hometown of Nazareth. It's kind of a significant moment for Jesus. They would have heard about him, of course. They knew who he was. They would have heard about what he was up to and, and the things he'd been, he'd been doing and saying. And since the synagogue was the cultural and, and spiritual uh, center of the community, it would have been customary for him to be invited to speak. And so that's what he did. He was teaching in the synagogue. And people were astonished, again, to hear what he was saying. But they began to question him. Where does this guy, who does this guy think he is? Where does this, 
Where does he get these, this wisdom and these mighty works? Isn't this the carpenter's son? His mom is Mary. His brothers are James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and all his sisters were over there. Where does this man get all these things? And they were offended. They were offended at him. They saw him as one of them. This didn't quite fit into their categories of what a Messiah is supposed to look like. He was a villager, a carpenter, not very impressive. They came face to face with Jesus' humanity. He did not fit into their categories for what someone who came from Nazareth was like and what the Messiah was supposed to be like. They stumbled over Jesus. And Matthew uses this word quite a bit in his Gospel. The Greek word here is scandalizo, which is where we get the word scandalize. And as one commentator put it, it seems to reflect, especially when used in context of people confronting Jesus, it seems to reflect the early Christian conviction. And listen to this, this is so important. The early Christian conviction that confrontation with Jesus constituted a moment of decision. One had to respond either with faith or with its opposite. Unbelief. The Nazarenes chose unbelief. And Jesus did not do many mighty works there. What a tragedy. To be deprived of the mighty works of Jesus. They heard his words. They saw his works. And they denied him worship. Jesus was not at home in his hometown of Nazareth. You are not at home here either. But Jesus came so you could be assured that you have an eternal home with him in heaven. God sent the one thing he had, his son, his treasure, his pearl. God handed Jesus over to suffer the cross, to take all of our guilt and shame upon himself to ensure that you and I would have the treasure would, would own the pearl and that you and I would be set apart for His kingdom when the last day comes. How is this? Because when Jesus took death down into the grave with all of our sin, He buried it there forever. And He rose triumphantly over sin and death and the power of Satan so we could be free in Him enjoying the gift of life through all its trials until we sit with him at the table of the king. Friend, there is no better option than that. Let's pray together. Jesus, we beg you to come to open our eyes and ears to the truth of the gospel. We pray that when you ask us the question, do you understand these things? We will say with joy and confidence, yes. Father, we confess this is hard to believe. You know we hold on tightly to the things of this world. You know that every day there are distractions to the truth of the gospel. Thank you for the grace you give us. Thank you for the patience 
you have with us. Please help us with our unbelief, Lord. You have invited us to be with you now and forever, and I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would allow us to accept this invitation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.